0: Open your Bibles, if you have it with you, to Acts, the third chapter, October 31st, 2017. While some are going to be celebrating Halloween, we know that the real significance of this date is that it's the 500th anniversary of what scholars consider the birth of the Reformation. It's the day that a German monk posted 95,000 theses or propositions on the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. He wanted to spark an academic discussion and debate and had no idea it would actually launch the Reformation. We considered these propositions last week and uh, considered the abuses of a church that had grown powerful and very corrupt and the biblical truths that were set forth in the Reformation by Martin Luther and by the other reformers that sprang up in various parts of Europe. This weekend, I want us to consider the response of the Catholic Church. There was only one church at the time. How they responded to Luther and his propositions. Uh, He wanted to reform the church, he himself being a a monk and a priest and the chair of biblical studies at Wittenberg University, a Catholic university, Um, but how they responded and the stand that he took and the events that followed that really have influenced things down to this very present day. Now, I know that some of you don't really get into history, and uh, I want to offer a a weak apology and suggest that (laughs) next week I'll get back to the future. But I want to appeal to you, if we don't understand history, as many have said, we're doomed to repeat it, but even more so, we can't understand the present if we don't understand what got us here. So if you're not a fan of history, let me encourage you to think about it this way. What I'm going to share with you is an exciting story, because it really is. And uh, look at it that way, and it may help you endure here. And so... Before we get to Martin Luther, though, and the Reformation in the 16th century, I want to begin in the book of Acts in the 1st century and look at an event that uh, a couple of Jesus' early disciples experienced because I think you're going to see an amazing parallel between that event recorded by Luke in Acts and what happened some 1,500 years later. Let's begin with their story. As it says in your outline, Threatened by the authorities, Peter and John take a stand. In Acts chapter 3, uh, we have these disciples in the early church. Uh, Jesus has been crucified, he was resurrected. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, the church was birthed. 3,000 people came to faith in Christ that day and were baptized, and the church continues to grow. It's about 5,000 now in the early days of the church. Peter and John are going up to the temple to worship. And they would still do that because they weren't ostracized from the rest of the Jews yet. And uh, they would go up and meet other disciples and sing praises in the temple courts. And they're on their way. And they come to a beggar that has been lying there for decades who's asking for alms, for money. And you remember this story in Acts 3 where Peter said, We don't have any silver or gold, but we'll give you what we have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he did. He not only walked, he leaped and praised God, and I'll tell you, it drew a crowd. People came around, and Peter and John took the opportunity and said, you see this man that's been laying here for this long? Don't look at us as if we had the power this was done in the name of Jesus Christ. And then he told him the gospel and how Jesus had come just as the prophets had said and he'd been crucified and risen again. And about in the midst of his message here come the priests in the temple and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees and they were not pleased to hear this message because they were indicted by it. And so they immediately had them arrested and Peter and John were thrown into jail. The next day, they brought Peter and John into the council, which would have been the Jewish ruling body, the Sanhedrin, and they put them in the center. And they were surrounded by, well, Caiaphas, the high priest, Annas, the former high priest, and all who were of high priestly descent, and the 70 council members. I'm telling you, talk about an intimidating setting for these Galilean fishermen who were followers of Jesus. And they asked them, by what authority or in whose name are you teaching these things? They didn't flinch. They said, it's in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one you crucified, whom God raised, and they preached the gospel to them in that setting. Well, they weren't happy to hear that, to say the least. And they sent them out of the room and they said, what are we going to do about this? We can't deny that a miracle has taken place. Everybody knows that guy lay there for years, and now he's not. What are we going to do? And they decided we're going to bring him in and threaten them not to say anything else. And so they said, don't teach or preach anymore in the name of Jesus. Here's where Peter and John took their stand. It says they replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. It was too late to threaten them. That train had already left the station. The message was out there and the church was growing and there's no way that Peter and John were going to be silent because they had been with Jesus and they'd seen and they'd heard life-changing messages and the gospel itself. Well, let's compare what happened to Peter and John to what happened some 1,500 years later. Threatened by the authorities, Martin Luther took a stand. I don't know if you listen to the radio broadcast, Focus on the Family, but I'd encourage you to do so, especially if you're, well, wanting help in guidance in life. Just excellent. Well, a week ago, Jim Daly, the president of Focus on the Family, interviewed Eric Metaxas. If that name sounds familiar, some of you know that he wrote the book Bonhoeffer, about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a courageous German pastor leading up to World War II. Well, he's written a new book called Martin Luther, the man who rediscovered God and changed the world. And uh, in the interview, Eric Metaxas told Jim Daly, he said, you know, as I've been writing this book about Martin Luther, a lot of people have asked me, you you mean Martin Luther King, right? (laughs) He said, no, I mean Martin Luther. He said, but people don't know who Martin Luther was. And that's why I'm glad that I'm writing this book because they need to know who Martin Luther was because just like they know who Abraham Lincoln or Julius Caesar uh, or, uh, or anyone like that, Columbus is, they need to know about this man. But by the way, that sparked my thinking a little bit more about Martin Luther King. And I thought, well, how did he get that name? Is there anything on that? I looked it up. You may not know that Martin Luther King's father was named Michael King. He was a Baptist pastor at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, and he went to Germany, and he followed the Luther Trail, and he learned what Luther had done and the stand he had taken. He was so inspired, he came back to Atlanta, changed his name to Martin Luther King, Sr., and changed the name of his five-year-old son to Martin Luther King, Jr., Well, Martin Luther King Jr. would grow up to take a stand also, wouldn't he? In Birmingham, at Selma, and then in D.C. when he would say, I have a dream. And because Martin Luther King stood on truth, God moved in power. He always does when people take a stand for truth. Well, let's get back to Martin Luther in the 1500s. There's an outline or a timeline in your bulletin by the 1500s, we need to understand that the Catholic Church had amassed so much power uh, over people's lives because they were united with nations. In fact, they held sway over nations. The Holy Roman Empire dominated Europe, but uh, they could uh, bring to power or diminish any prince or king in that Holy Roman Empire. They were really melted together. In fact, Metaxas made the comment, there was no daylight between the power of the church and the power of the state. They were melted together as one. If you had different theological thoughts in those years, you would be crushed. They used their power in a very methodical way. Well, Luther, as I said last week, was the chairman of biblical studies at Wittenberg University in Germany. And... uh, it was some of the abuses that really prompted him to act. In particular, and I went into this in depth last week, uh, the sale of indulgences, and I'll just mention it, that, well, it all started with a building project in 1506 when the Catholic Church laid the foundation for St. Peter's Basilica, or cathedral, in Rome. And they needed money to finance it. And one of the ways they decided they could finance it was through the sale of indulgences. And that was a uh, document that they would sell to parishioners uh, that said that they could get themselves or relatives who had died out of purgatory sooner and into heaven. Purgatory was a doctrine that they had come up with through the years, not biblical, uh, said you had to pay for your own sins in addition to what Christ had done, and you would do that in the flames of purgatory after this life. But if you had this paper, you could get to heaven sooner or purchase it for relatives. And so they were selling those, and that set Luther off. And that's why he posted those 95 theses. Those were the two first propositions in that document, and then he went on from there. Uh, By the way, Michael Didway is the editor of Christianity Today and he said if he were posting those theses on a door today he probably would show a picture of himself on Instagram. He would uh, send out a tweet about it and write a blog and in fact maybe even in the responses there'd be a place in which the Pope could excommunicate him digitally, I don't know about that. Well anyway, it set off a firestorm when he posted those propositions on the door. And the Catholic response was not mellow. In fact, Metaxas said this. They didn't respond by saying, hey, thanks for letting us know about this, Brother Martin. In fact, they said, shut up. We don't want to hear any more about it. So in 1518, Luther is charged with heresy, and uh, this was communicated to him through a a, a papal bull. And... uh, Papal bull was a document with a bulla or seal on it that he received that condemned his writings and said that he was to burn all of his writings. So how would he respond to that? Well, remember, he was a professor there at the university. He'd been teaching his students the gospel and the truths of scripture, which Most common people didn't even know, and only the priests understood the Latin in which it was written. And so he led them out of that classroom that day down to the square in Wittenberg, and uh, they started a fire, and he took the papal bull and tossed it in the fire. Whoa. Talk about in your face. That's like signing your death warrant in those days. And then he continued to teach and to write pamphlets that were distributed all over. And remember, the printing press had just been invented about 60, 70 years earlier. So those pamphlets were going everywhere. And, and, and it was just a barrage of those pamphlets. Metaxas made the comment, it would be like today, somebody using Twitter or sending out tweets to bypass the main media. Well, that's exactly what he was doing. He, he could The Catholic Church couldn't keep up with what was happening through all of his pamphlets. These pamphlets would speak the gospel, they would address the abuses of the church, and they would also uh, defend himself. A hundred years earlier, when Jan Hus, over in Czechoslovakia, or... Uh, Tyndale, up in England, both Catholic priests themselves who wanted to bring reform, they had that message also. They just didn't have the means of the printing press and the communicative ability that Luther had. So in 1521, he's called to trial. And it's convened in Worms, Germany, by the Holy Roman Emperor himself. The Archbishop of Mainz is there, Frederick III, who is Luther's protector, is there, the Catholic attorneys and cardinals, and they've all gathered in an intimidating setting to ask him to recant. There's a film that came out a few years ago called Luther, and uh, I want you to watch a brief clip that I think portrays this beautifully.
1: Well doctor. Good luck, Martin. Good, Good luck. luck. Good luck Marty.
2: Order in the hall. Order. Order. Martin Luther, are you the author of these writings? I am. Do you recant what you have written here?
1: I cannot renounce all of my works because they are not all the same. First of those books in which I have described Christian faith and life so simply that even my opponents have admitted that these works are useful. To renounce these writings would be unthinkable, for that would be to renounce accepted Christian truths.
2: He is not here to make speeches, only to answer.
1: The second group of my work is directed against the foul doctrine and evil living of the Pope's past and present. No! Yes, 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 yes. Through the laws of the Pope and the doctrines of men, the consciences of the faithful have been miserably vexed and flayed. If I recant these books, I will do nothing but add strength to tyranny and open not just the windows but also the doors to this great ungodliness.
2: He has condemned himself.
1: In the third group, I have written against private persons and individuals who uphold Roman tyranny and have attacked my own efforts to encourage piety to Christ. I confess. But I've written too harshly. I am but a man and I can err. Only let my errors be proven by Scripture. And I will revoke my work and throw my books into the fire.
2: You have not answered the question. You, Martin Luther, will not draw into doubt those things which the Catholic Church has judged already. Things that have passed into usage, right, and observance. The faith that Christ, the most perfect lawgiver, ordained. The faith the martyrs strengthened with their blood. You wait in vain for a disputation over things that you are obligated to believe. Now give your answer. Yes or no. Will you recant or will you not?
1: since Your Majesty and Your Lordships desire a simple reply. I will answer. Unless I am convinced by Scripture and by plain reason and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Well,
0: Well, I don't know about you, but I think Martin Luther deserves a hand for that stand. Let's give him a round of applause. (laughs) After the trial, he was guaranteed safe passage, but they attempted to apprehend him along the way because they were going to kill him. But uh, his protector, Frederick III, uh, was able to get him and smuggle him off to Wartburg Castle, where he lived for about a year. And during part of that time, as he prayed and studied, one of the things he did in an 11-week period he took the New Testament that was in Greek and had gone to Latin and he was able to get the Greek copies and translate that in 11 weeks into the German language of the people. A, a literary feat that stands to this day. In fact, that Bible is still used in Germany by many people more than we even use the King James today. He was a brilliant man. Well, after the time at Wartburg Castle, uh, he returned to uh, Wittenberg. Now, What happened as a result in the years that followed is that because some princes and dukes supported Luther and some of the Catholic Church, Europe became a patchwork religiously. There were Catholic areas and Lutheran areas and other areas uh, that formed following other dissenters of the Catholic Church. But when he got back to Wittenberg, one of the things that he determined was that priests and nuns should be able to marry and to have children. He felt like that was the way of God. And and so he knew that many of the priests and nuns, especially the nuns, were being held against their will. Many of them had been taken to monasteries and nunneries between the ages of five and eight years of age. They were held under lock and key. It was a capital offense to help them to escape. But he issued a call to any of them that wanted to come to Wittenberg, and they came. They fled the monasteries, and they came to Wittenberg. And one of them was Catherine Bora, whom he married a few years later. And then he and Katharina opened housing for these people. uh, And Dee and I saw it. It's amazing what they did there as they cared for those that came. They had the first Protestant church in 1525, the first Protestant church service, and the whole structure of the church changed. I mean, he he made the word of God prominent so that it was taught to the people as it had not been. Worship became very important in the life of the church. Doctrines such as marriage were elevated as set forth in Scripture. In 1533, they came forth with the Augsburg Confession, listing the teachings of Scripture, which is still a cornerstone of the Lutheran Church. And they published a songbook in that year as well. In fact, one of the songs that they uh, put in that songbook was one that Martin Luther himself wrote. He called on others to write them, but he wrote, his best loved hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I would sing it for you, but you guys have heard me sing, so what we're going to do is we're going to play this during communion, and uh, you can sing along if you want, or just be uh, encouraged again by the profound words and lyrics that Luther set forth in that hymn. Here's what he said about music. He said, I have no use for cranks who despise music because it is a gift of God. Music drives away the devil and makes people joyful. They forget all wrath and unchastity and arrogance. Next, after theology, I give to music the highest place and the greatest honor. Eric Metaxas, who wrote the book on Luther, said, Everything we take for granted in the church today started with Luther. When he pulled away from the Catholic Church, there had been no congregational singing. It was just the monks doing the Gregorian chants and so on. So if you came to a service, you're not singing. Luther changed everything. He said, the people must sing. Their faith will be deepened by the lyrics of these psalms. We've got to take these beautiful lyrics, and we've got to make hymns, and we have to have the people sing hymns. Now, to be fair, it's important that I state that Luther was very human. When he was a young man, and we talked about this last week, when he went into that monastery, he was fearful uh, for his own salvation. He, he was a miserable monk. He was always trying to please God with his prayers and penances and fastings and everything. Very serious. But when he discovered the gospel of grace, um, he became free and very much known for his humor. Some of it was coarse humor. And uh, His whole personality seemed to change. But toward the end of his life, he said and wrote some things that were not good at all. One of the things that he did was he spoke disparagingly of Jewish people. He was angry, by the way, uh, that they didn't just embrace the gospel because he thought once he had set forth the gospel of grace that they would just flock to it, and they didn't. And uh, he said some terrible things about the Jews. Some think he may have been into dementia by that point late in his life. I don't know. But I do know that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis picked up on those writings and used them to inflame uh, the German people against Jewish people. And that's a sad saga in the commentary of Luther. But I think it illustrates that God uses very flawed people to accomplish his purpose. Look at the Bible, we see that over and over again. So from the 16th century until today the Reformation spread all over Europe and the world and some significant things happened. One thing was that the Catholic Church's power and the power of the Pope was forever broken. It would never be what it had been in the past. Another thing that happened is there was what was called the Radical Reformation. There were those who didn't even go along with the Reformers, they didn't think it went far enough. These were called the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists said, well, we believe that the New Testament mode of baptism was by immersion for believers, adult baptism. We also believe there should be a separation of the church and the state, whereas the Catholic Church and even the Lutheran Church allied themselves with the state. They said, oh no, we don't want any state control. And they were also known for their non-resistance um, militarily and wouldn't fight and such. Uh, the, the descendants of the Anabaptists or the Baptists or the Mennonites or the Quakers. When Dee and I were there in 2012 on our sabbatical, uh, we went, among other places, we followed that Luther trail, but then we went into Switzerland And that's where Zurich and Zwingli was up in Zurich and Geneva where Calvin was. Well, my grandmother was from just outside of Zurich, a place called Aral. So we went to Aral and looked around and we saw this huge church and it said established 1450. And I thought, wow, 67 years before the Reformation took place in 1517. And then here comes the pastor on that Saturday evening. And I got to talk to him and I said so the Catholics built this for you guys, huh? And he said that's exactly what happened because within 67 years that became a Lutheran church. And I said well my grandmother and her family were from this village. Um, Can you look in the church rolls? See if you can find the name Geiger and let me know. I'd be interested. And uh, we exchanged email addresses. I never heard from him. One of the reasons may be Uh, when I got back to the States uh, and talked to my family, I realized, oh no, she wasn't a Lutheran. She was Anabaptist. And uh, what you may not know is that when the Reformers, Luther and the other Reformers, were excommunicated from the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church persecuted them terribly. But when the Reformers, including the Lutherans, came into power in their areas, guess what they did to the Anabaptists? they persecuted them as well. In fact, we had a lady in our first service. Uh, her family were Anabaptists in Switzerland, and uh, the, the, her ancestors, and they were thrown into a dungeon where they died, and their descendants, they lost their properties, eventually came to the U.S. with William Penn and the Quakers. And so it, it just shows that whoever has power, whatever strand or stream it is, Human nature is such that you exploit other people. I mean, there's good and evil in every movement, and we need the grace of God to keep us on track. Uh, Catholics, Protestants, Anabaptists, whoever. Well, over in England, I mentioned that Henry VIII started his own church, the Anglican Church, for his own reasons. That's another story. But the denominations that came out of the Reformation continued to proliferate where today we have so many and that's not a really good thing. I don't think that would please Jesus at all. In fact, even Luther said this, which might surprise you. He said, The first thing that people should not make use of is my name and should not call themselves Lutherans but Christians. What is Luther? The teaching is not mine nor was I crucified for anyone. Interesting. And so, in the restoration movement, we say, let's just be Christians. Let's follow Christ. Let's follow his name. And, and we have our own problems, see, uh, and challenges. But, but that's the essence, I think, of the gospel, and Luther understood that. Now, one more thing I want to say, and that is, the Catholic Church has made many reforms over the years. Many movements have attempted to reform it, and in some ways, they've done a lot of reform. To where today, we in the evangelical church often have more in common with the Catholic church than we do with the mainline liberal denominations. Many of those denominations no longer believe in the necessity of the cross or believe in the real resurrection of Jesus or hold to the truth of scriptures We agree. In fact, Chuck Colson came out with a document called Catholics and Evangelicals Together. We find common ground when it comes to the gospel and we find common ground when it comes to the sanctity of human life or marriage between one man and one woman. It's kind of interesting how history changes and moves but uh, ultimately find our truth in scripture and agree and find common ground with all who hold to that. So let me close by saying that there are two principles I just want to have us consider applying that relate to these heroes, Peter and John and Martin Luther. First is this, when you lack confidence to speak up for Christ, make sure you're standing on a solid foundation. When Peter and John were challenged in the council, In verse 12, it records, they said, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. They stood on the name of Jesus. He's the rock. He's the foundation. They knew it. Many people today vacillate. But if we move from Christ, uh, we have moved from uh, the solid foundation we have been given. And then, when you lack confidence to speak up for Christ... Make sure your training comes from the teacher. It says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. How could these Galileans stand there in the midst of them and defy them and refuse to budge? Their confidence, their courage was, well, it made these people marvel. And then they realized there was another one who stood in our midst and didn't flinch also. And that was Jesus of Nazareth, whom we crucified. And these guys hung out with him. And so if we want to be unafraid, when we could be intimidated in the university classroom or in a conversation with a coworker, or whatever, we need to make sure we're listening to the teacher, that we've stood on the rock of his word. And then we can speak humbly, but with confidence and courage and know that uh, God will use that powerfully. You may not feel like you're there yet. And I think that's okay. I think we all probably feel like we're not there yet. We're going to get into that with just walk across the room in a couple of weeks. But Martin Luther said this. A Christian is never in a state of completion. But always in a process of becoming. And we want to become like Martin Luther. Like Peter and John Like Jesus, for sure. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, thank you for men and women who have taken a stand and made a difference because it was your power that moved through that stand. We want to be those kind of people, Lord. Help us to grow in our trust of you and confidence standing on your word and your truth. We pray this in your name.
1: Amen.